Ezra 1, 1 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided with them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400, all these did Cheshbazar bring up with, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. We've got a lot of babies, I think, in the room, which means I need to hustle. Uh, and it's also a really pretty day, <clears throat> um, which probably means you're thinking, this guy needs to hustle. Uh, it's like, do you, remember, you know that Brad Paisley song? about nothing tests your, face like a long, tests your faith like a long sermon on a pretty Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that's a good song. You should look it up. So <clears throat> we're starting a new series today. We completed 1 Peter last week. And this next series, we're going to continue going through uh, books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, this series, we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah. The books Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally were together. In Hebrew Bibles, they're still together, considered as one book. We split them up. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly why, uh, but it makes it easier to talk about which character we're talking about anyway. So we're going to be preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah, and our title of our series is called Reliving the Glory Days, because what Ezra and Nehemiah is about it's about the exiles who were exiled to Babylon. So that means they were removed from their homeland in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem in particular, and exiled to this foreign country, this foreign nation of Babylon. This is about their return, their return, their promised return to Jerusalem. And what we see throughout these stories is a hearkening back to, a trying to rebuild the glory that was Jerusalem. In a sense, it's an attempt to relive the glory days of the uh, Jerusalem that they had known, 
the beauty of the place that they had left. And what we'll see is that in some ways they experienced these incredible successes, that God is amazingly faithful to them throughout this process. And then we follow, what we'll do is we'll follow three characters, and each of these three characters uh, sees these incredible successes. They overcome certain obstacles uh, in rebuilding their temple, rebuilding the community of people, rebuilding the walls of their city. And yet, at the end of each of their successes, we see they didn't quite get there. The glory days, the, the way that they had remembered it, they never really get to see again. There's something still missing. And in that, what we'll see is it, their attempt to relive the glory days and, and their lack of success that we see in that is actually something calling us forward and calling them forward to a future glory, a glory that doesn't exist in their past, but a greater glory that they were working towards. One that, uh, in that sense, these books are really relatable to where we are now. See, we know more than they did. We know the glory that was coming in Jesus. But we're also working towards a kingdom, a temple, and a community of God's kingdom of heaven that comes into the earth and renews creation and puts creation back into the order that it was intended to be in. So in that sense, we're looking forward, toward, to, we're looking forward and building towards a kingdom as well. What we'll see in these three characters are, are incredible, is this incredible courage, incredible fortitude in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it, Nehemiah, I think especially, is this like incredibly exciting character in ancient literature. He's really multifaceted and really interesting. Ezra's passion is convicting and amazing, as we'll look through it. Zerubbabel, another character with a less marketable name, uh, we'll also get to know early on. But uh, what we'll see throughout their stories is the way that they were able to have these incredible characteristics because they were able to connect their story and their work to the bigger picture of what they saw God doing in the world. So what we're looking at as we look through these texts is a picture of how does our work and God's work align? How do those things play together? How are we able to connect the stories that we're in and the work that we're doing to the greater work that God is doing in the world? Rebuilding a, a city, rebuilding a community, a temple, those things are pretty tangible. The kingdom of heaven it isn't exactly tangible in that same sort of way. And so it can be difficult for us to understand how does my day-to-day -day efforts at my job or with my family and my community, how does that possibly tie into this greater work that God is doing in bringing the kingdom of heaven into the world? I think as we look through the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll see how God's work really does connect to ours in really surprising ways. Uh, it, so that these aspects of our lives that might have seemed meaningless before, you can see can actually be incredibly meaningful and an incredible work of the Lord. So that's a bit of what I hope we see. To begin with, uh, we need to get sort of our bearings. So let's get a bit of our context in a section I have titled previously in exile. Um, it was titled previously on the West Wing. Um, so what got us here? 
what got the exiles to where our story begins. When you read through the stories of Israel's development, and especially of the chronicles of the kings of Israel, it can be incredibly frustrating. And it can easily expose a way that we approach Scripture that isn't particularly helpful for understanding it. Oftentimes, we read Scripture in a way that's just devotional, or in a way that's actually called exemplary, which means we're looking for examples to follow. We're looking for heroes to emulate. And when you're reading through the books of Chronicles and the books of Kings, you realize pretty quickly that, like, man, like, none of these people are good. Like, there's not one good example in here, and it's just kind of frustrating. We have uh, kings that are overly ambitious and just living like the Canaanite kings of the rest of the world. We have kings that are, like, wildly passive, where it's like, come on, just do, do something. Like, he said to go take that land, take the land. And everywhere in between. So uh, what we see throughout, this, throughout Israel's recording of its own history is that throughout the scripture, there is no sugarcoating of the nature of Israel as it actually was, or the kings as they actually were. History is recorded accurately, and they pull no punches. When kings were bad, they talk about them as though they were bad. So what we see throughout the story of Kings and Chronicles is this sort of downward trajectory of the, of the people of Israel and the kings of Israel moving further and further away from the Lord, further away from their intention of being a, a, a city, a, a, a community, and a type of people that spread light into the world. Instead, they're just more darkness and look just more like everyone else. Eventually, it comes to a head. This is recorded at the end of 2 Chronicles. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until, until there was no remedy." So what we see is we reach a certain point in this downward trajectory where God says there's no remedy for these people. I've sent messenger after messenger to them because I care for them. I care for my dwelling place in the world. And yet it seems like there's such a point where we've reached such depravity that there's no remedy for these people anymore. So he sends them into exile. He sacks the city of Jerusalem, captures the uh, people that were living there, and they're dragged out of their homes to live in exile in Babylon. Second Chronicles 3620 uh, captures this with a look towards where we are now. It says, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, that's where we are now. It's been under, just under 70 years that the Jewish people had been living in exile in Babylon, that they had been living as foreigners in a nation that was hostile towards them. And now, at the end of this 70 years, there's a change in the winds of the empires of the world, 
And we're going to see that that has a dramatic effect on what happens to these Jews who were living in exile. That's right where our story picks up. The Babylonian Empire falls, the Persian Empire rises, and there's dramatic implications for the Jewish exiles. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this in term, from two perspectives this morning. We're going to look at the historical perspective, and then we're going to look at the theological perspective. From that, we'll be able to see basically the two ways that we often look at our own lives and hopefully be able to see more clearly what does it look like when God is actually working in our lives and God is actually working in the world. How can we connect those two stories? So we're going to be looking at, firstly, policy, because ultimately what has this impact on uh, the Jewish exiles returning home is a, governmental, a new governmental policy that's put in place. So firstly, we'll be looking at policy. That'll be the historical perspective. And then secondly, we'll be looking at providence. That's called alliteration. Uh, We'll be looking at policy and providence. So firstly, policy, the historical perspective. Uh, Some of you are like, this is kind of funny. I was standing when we were reading the scripture, and Zach was standing next to me, and I had a pen in my pocket. And Zach pulled it out of my pocket, and he was like, you can't walk up there looking like a nerd. <laughs> um, and I, for this next part of the sermon, I should have kept the pen in my pocket. Um, this is very his, historical, kind of nerdy. So in five, between 539 and 538 BC, the Persian Empire rises and conquers the Babylonian Empire under a man named Cyrus the Great. This is King Cyrus the Great, who's a really important figure historically, the establisher of the Persian Empire. And he takes a really different approach towards government and policy than the Babylonian Empire, than the Babylonian kings did. He doesn't have much of a uh, like per- particular or decided what means of doing government or way of doing government. What he does is much more collaborative. So he engages with a lot of different kings, and he actually develops sort of unique forms of government, sort of just taking in their best ideas. And that's the way the Persian Empire develops. And so it spreads really diplomatically. Uh, he's, an, he's an incredible diplomat, King Cyrus is. And in light of this, he takes the exact opposite policy towards exiles that the Babylonians had. So while the Babylonians would conquer a people and then they would tear down their places of worship and they would remove the people from that area uh, to sort of dissolve any potential uprisings or any uh, potential um, seats of power throughout the kingdom, the Persian Empire, and under Cyrus the Great, he took the opposite approach, which was he was actually saying to these exiled peoples in the Babylonian Empire, now that I'm king, you can go back. You can go back to your homelands. And by the way, while you're going back, I want you to reestablish your temples under your gods and your cities. And the reason that I want you to do this is because I want your gods to be praying to my god, Marduk, you may have heard of. If I don't think any of you worship the Babylonian god of Marduk. But if you're here, we're glad you're here. And this is a, place, this is a safe place for questions. 
<laughs> um, but the reason was he's exploring, it, he wanted these other gods to be, in a sense, praying to and giving offering to the god that he saw as supreme overall, uh, the Babylonian god of Marduk. So he's an incredible diplomat. He takes this opposite approach from the Babylonians. And this is actually recorded on a historical artifact that we have. It's in the British Museum. It was discovered in 1879 by Hormuzd Rassam. Uh, and it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. This is really cool. It's a pillar that has cuneiform inscri inscribed uh, up and down sort of the whole area. And on that, we've translated uh, a section that captures this exact policy. This, this artifact is how we know this. So, recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder, it says, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein, and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, they may say this, Cyrus the king who worships you and Cambysius his son, and that's where I uh, lose my cuneiform. Um, I'm just kidding, I didn't translate that from cuneiform. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, that captures precisely these policies that we're discussing, that have these real implications for the Jewish people. Why were they freed? Well, look at this new policy of this new king. This inscription is incredibly famous. In fact, it's been called the first declaration of human rights in history, which is probably overstepping. I think that that's a bit of projecting our own sort of understanding of the world back onto a 5th uh, uh, century BC Persian king. But uh, you can see where someone might think that, right? Because what he's offering is this sort of religious plurality of expression, or a plurality of religious expression throughout the Babylon, excuse me, throughout the Persian Empire. It's actually pretty incredible and unprecedented for the time. It's an amazing thing that Cyrus the Great had done. So it's because of this policy that these Jewish exiles who had been stripped from their home in Jerusalem, now this new policy, because of a new empire that they happen to be living under, comes into the world, and because of that, they're freed and returned home. They're sent home because of this new sort of policy. What I want us to see is that so far, we haven't covered anything theological. So far, what we've seen is just history, just a sort of change in policy. So what was God's work in all this? See, what happens is these, the way that God is working through these policies gets exposed through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where what these, what these books do and what the writers of Ezra and Nehemiah are able to do is to see these policies and sort of peel back the curtain on just these matters of fact that are happening in the world and describe to us the real internal meaning of what's happening the ways that God is working that might have otherwise just been written off as just happenstance 
uh, just sort of policies that just sort of happen to come through this certain type of new ruler in the world. Instead, they peel back the curtain and they reveal the internal workings of how God is really working through these policies. So that these matters of fact to people like Ezra and Nehemiah have such meaning that they're able to move with incredible faith because they're seeing God's work in the world. So with that, we're going to look through this first chapter of Ezra to see the real meaning behind these events that Ezra pulls out. Ezra 1.1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So what we see here is the writer of Ezra, before he introduces uh, Cyrus's declaration that will ultimately free the Jewish people, he says that it was the spirit of the Lord that was working in Cyrus to do this. And this actually isn't the first time that the scripture speaks about the spirit of the Lord working particularly in King Cyrus. In fact, Cyrus is specifically prophesied about in Isaiah. His very conquering of the Babylonian empire is prophesied about. In uh, Isaiah 45.1, for example, it says, uh, that the Lord would be working through Cyrus to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Why is the Babylonian Empire falling? Because the Lord is working in Cyrus to subdue kings, loose the belts of kings. Isaiah continues with regard to Cyrus in, Cyrus in 45.4. It says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is in reference to Cyrus in earlier verses where he is named specifically. It says, I, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. See, God, on behalf of Israel, on behalf of his people, is working through this man, Cyrus, who, if asked, are you working to accomplish what the Lord is doing in the world? Cyrus would not say yes, <laughs> Say, well, mostly I'm interested in the empire thing. Uh, that's sort of more my drive in the matter. Like, my, my reasoning for conquering the Babylonian empire isn't so this small group of exiles can be returned to their home. And yet, God says that's exactly why Cyrus is so successful in his conquering. It's because God is working to bring his exiled people home. See, these things start to come together. That's when these matters of fact become matters of meaning. In this verse also, in Ezra 1.1, it says, uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. See, in Jeremiah 29.10, uh, Jeremiah prophesies, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. See, Cyrus's new empire-wide policy is not simply good diplomacy. And his new empire-wide policy is not simply, uh, you know, a, a more civil way to enact governments or conquering uh, a people. 
but this is actually fulfilling the word of the Lord that these exiles might be returned home and might be brought back. See, God is working through Cyrus, despite Cyrus's own motives, to accomplish his ends for his people. That's what we see right away in the beginning of Ezra. This is what they're establishing clearly. So writing to these people, you might have seen, uh, you can imagine, like, oh, look at all these changes in empires. Look at all these changes in policies. How great that this is affecting us. And it is the scripture that unveils to us that this is God's working. This is how God works in the world. So with that, let's look at, uh, I want to read through again Cyrus's actual decree that returns the exiles home. This is Ezra 1, 2 through 4. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. See, this decree is almost precisely just in miniature and for a particular group of people, the decree that we had, saw, that we had seen nationally rolled out on the Cyrus Cylinder that's recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. Scholars agree that even this decree in Ezra is written in really a diplomatic type of language. He refers to the God of heaven because that's the way that outsiders typically referred to the Jewish God. That was the appropriate designation as the God of heaven. And as a polytheist, Cyrus would have thought that all gods everywhere were working for his accomplishing of his new empire. So for him to say that the God of heaven helped him accomplish this new empire, it, it means something different to him than it does to us, or than it did to the Jewish people. And yet, God working through that is able to say through a non-believing king with ulterior motives is able to communicate specifically to his people the fulfillment of his promises. That's the way that God is working in the world. It can be easy for us to sort of neglect uh, the ways that God is working because we, we expect him to be working in these ways that are more overtly miraculous, that don't look like just a change in policy. And yet, that's exactly what we see here. If you've heard sermons on Ezra and Nehemiah before, uh, especially Nehemiah, then they probably have sounded more like, like a leadership coaching book. Uh, Nehemiah is sort of like a classic text to use for like examples of just good leadership and leadership coaching principles. Uh, so with a quick search on Amazon, I was like, all right, let's look up what the Nehemiah books are. Uh, here's a sample of like the top five books on Nehemiah. Uh, book one, Be Determined, Standing Firm in the Face of Opposition. That's a book on Nehemiah. Be Determined. <laughs> like, 
Duh, why didn't I try that? <laughs> Nehemiah, overcoming challenges. Nehemiah, statesman and sage. Coolest tombstone ever. <laughs> Nehemiah, becoming a godly leader. So we see that all of these books, it's really a focus on the character of Nehemiah and how to develop a character that's similar to that. But what we see that's being established in Ezra right away, these connected stories from the very beginning, is that any credit that goes to Ezra or that goes to Nehemiah for any of their accomplishments, it all begins with this is God working in the world. It all begins with God's ultimate sovereign working out his purposes completely in the world. Any character that we see uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, any fortitude, any sense of de determination, any sense, what was the name of that book? Be Determined. <laughs> any sense of being determined that they're able to have, it stems from their seeing that God is working his salvation in the world for them that ultimately this is God's doing from start to finish. That's what they were able to have faith in, that it was ultimately God who was working for them, that these happenstances of history weren't simply that, but they were actually God's providence working out in the world. They were given the eyes to see that. It all stems from their understanding of this simple principle that God saves sinners. That, the, that despite the arrogance and the negligence and the evil intentions of his people that drove them into exile, God was still working on their behalf to rescue them, to bring them back home. Ultimately, any character we see in Ezra and Nehemiah stems from that reality, that God is working his salvation in the world in that way. Because you see, even the ability to trust in God's working in the world is an evidence of or because of God working in your own spirit, of God stirring in your own spirit. We often think, why doesn't God work in the ways that he used to? Why don't we see the real miracles that we used to see? I could have character like Ezra and Nehemiah had if I were able to see that God brought about the destruction of an empire so that our small people could be freed. Then I would have faith like that. But I think that sort of perspective neglects what the actual experience would be like. How easy it would be to write this off as just happenstance not as providence. It is easy to say that the sitting king, uh, here's, kind, here's kind of what happened. The sitting king of Babylon has a son, and that son is an incredible soldier, but he's a horrible diplomat, and he makes a few moves that really anger and frustrate the priestly class who had a lot of power in the Babylonian empire. So because of his bad diplomacy, they lose the priestly class, and uh, Cyrus is able to rise up with his good diplomacy and the allegiances of the empire simply shift to this new style of leader. And you can see that in the details and the grit unfolding and just think, 
this isn't God working. This is just a stupid son of a king who shouldn't have been put in power. And if he hadn't have been put in power, and if he had been more diplomatic towards the priestly class, then none of this would be happening anyway. We do that all the time. We think, well, this isn't God healing because I know the way the medicine works that's healing me. This isn't God working because I can, see the, I can see all the details and trace the patterns of cause and effect for why it's happening. See, it takes the Spirit working in us to be able to actually make the connection that God is the one who's in control of everything. So that if God saves sinners, that means he's working out every aspect of his salvation from start to finish, from actually accomplishing the salvation in the world by whatever means he sees necessary, and then by applying the reality of that salvation to our own hearts so that we might see this was God who was the one working it out. We so frequently miss that God is working in our lives in these incredible ways because we're able to trace the cause and effect and say, well, this isn't God. This is just this particular happenstance. But here, when these come together and the way that Ezra and Nehemiah peel back the curtain on what's happening, we're able to see that this is truly God's work in the world. It continues on to the return of the exiles, their response to Cyrus's decree. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see, what is it that ultimately makes the Jewish people return? What is it that makes these exiles return to Jerusalem? It's the same thing that made Cyrus free them. It's the spirit of the, war, of the Lord stirring in them. See, it takes the Lord's spirit stirring to accomplish his salvation, and it takes the Lord's spirit stirring to apply his salvation to our hearts. Getting that, seeing that God is the one who saves sinners from start to finish, that he is accomplishing it and he's applying it to us so that, the, so that we can actually see the fruit of this in our lives. That's the thing that we have faith in. That's where the strength of our faith comes from that gives us a fortitude, that gives us a courage, that gives us a determination. Be determined. <laughs> I've been making fun of that book title, but it's actually kind of a good book title because you can be determined if you know that you've been determined. If you know that your success is being worked for by God's actual working in the world. And that doesn't mean success like financial success or like health or prosperity. It doesn't mean success like that, but it does mean success of God's kingdom actually being made manifest in the world, in your patience, in your ability to forgive, in relationships that you thought were irreconcilable being reconciled, in work that was a real long shot actually coming together. Those things are all possible those become what are, the fact that God saves sinners is what our faith is in, that inspires us to be a part of those things. One quick example, and then we'll wrap up. 
I decided to go to CU Boulder because I wanted to ski, uh, which is why, I, like, like 60 to 70% of the people that I met there, we were in agreement. Um, it wasn't the academics. <laughs> uh, so I really wanted to ski. Uh, there are a couple of other reasons, if you're familiar with Boulder. But <laughs> I wanted to ski, and uh, I was accepted into the journalism school. But when I got there for my summer orientation, the journalism school was discontinued. And so it was like, you have to pick another major. And I was like, I don't know what other major to pick. So I picked a major that is uh, almost picking undecided. I studied philosophy. <laughs> and I go to my first philosophy class, and my professor of a logic course it writes out on the board, and he writes out this argument that disproves the existence of God. Like, we can get that out of the way now. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, people just know <laughs> that there's no God? So I go into this, like, crisis, and I'm walking back from lunch at the C4C, which is the greatest dining hall in the world. And walking back from lunch, and there are people handing out surveys and lollipops. And uh, I, like, get a lollipop and do a survey, because I'm a freshman and I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, like, something so gimmicky that I would, like, hate now. Uh, and the survey is, like, on my faith. Uh, and through that survey, I meet this uh, guy whose name is David Billingsley. And he, he was able to address the questions that my philosophy classes were provoking in just the most helpful and beneficial way, guiding me and introducing me to the scripture in a way that I never expected. Or it, it, I saw the Bible answering questions that I thought there just weren't answers for. I saw the breakdowns in my professor's arguments and how much more coherent and beautiful and meaningful the Christian faith was than what was being described in class. That became, my time with him became sort of a bedrock of my faith. You see, those are all happenstance. Those were all God working despite any of my motives or intentions. That wasn't me seeking God, right? There's not a, uh, I think that many of our stories are like that. They're that not exciting, in a sense. But it's by the Spirit that we're able to see that this is God's working in the world. God is the God who saves sinners. This is something we can know so much more completely than Ezra and Nehemiah were able to know because we're able to see it in Jesus. All of the glory that they were trying to see relived and reaccomplished, we get to see so much more completely and beautifully as we look toward the real, the final kingdom of heaven being established. The point of this sermon, <laughs> what was the point of the sermon? <laughs> the point of this sermon was not 
was not some new way or a new, I don't know. This isn't like a new tactic, right? But this is, we need to remember frequently that it is, this is all God's doing in the world. That whatever we hope to accomplish in our lives is ultimately God's doing in the world. And so fundamentally, for us to have the character built into us that we need, the fortitude, the determination, the consistency, the care, the love, the patience, those things that we need, those types of people that we need to become, that doesn't happen if we don't get this first principle, that God saves sinners, that God is working to build a real kingdom, and his work looks a lot like the life we're in now. So by the Spirit, I pray that we're able to connect our lives to that vision, so that we're able to have that fortitude built into us to endure the obstacles like we'll see these people endure, to build a a vastly more glorious kingdom than they were imagining, trusting that it's God who is doing it from start to finish. If we aren't trusting that, our motivations will always be wrong. We'll always just be trying to prove ourselves by whatever work we're doing, rather than joining in the joyous work that God is accomplishing in the world. So with that, I'll take a couple of questions, and uh, then we'll pray that the Spirit would move in our hearts, that we might see the world more, more clearly for what God is actually doing in it. Questions. Is it appropriate for us as Christians to apply all of God's biblical promises to our personal lives, even though some, like Jeremiah 29, 10-11's promise, for plans to prosper you and not to harm you, were intended for his historical Israel. So this is a question about, like, what is good Bible study? What's for us and what isn't for us? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 16 and 17, bonus verse. (laughs) So that says all scripture. So that means that there is this sense in which all scripture is available to us and for us, that it may be reproving, correcting, rebuking, training us up in righteousness, making us adequate for the works that God is calling us to. So is all scripture for us in that sense? Yes, it is. It's available for us in that sense. But we we need to be applying it uh, as it was intended to be applied with the intention of the author who was writing it. So that means that we can't just snipe verses out of context and say, this one's nice because this one's for me. Uh, there's an awesome meme I saw online, uh, the internet, you guys should check it out. And there's, uh, it's like a, a tearaway calendar that gives a scripture verse for each day, and it says, like, uh, I will give you, like, whatever kingdom you want, uh, just ask of me. <laughs> and, and it's like, that's, cute. that's a nice verse. And then, it, then you look it up, and who, it was Satan saying that. <laughs> <laughs> to Jesus, tempting, tempting Jesus in the desert. And it's like, maybe that's not one I want to name and claim. <laughs> but the, the point being, we need to grab and apply Scripture wisely. 
Like, what does this mean? I know the plans for you. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. He's writing to, uh, this is being written and read to a group of people who are being ripped from their homes, dragged on, think like trail of tears, to a new land uh, where, yeah, they will be, live lives in in a really hostile kingdom. And they're said, they're promised, you're going to be here for 70 years. So that means that most of the people reading it what he's saying is, you'll never see home again. And your life, for the rest of your life, will be harder than it was. So I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. What does that mean for me? It, it means that can only be true when I'm able to connect the vision of my life to the ultimate vision of what God is working in the world. There is a reality of uh, God's promises for us. But those only become meaningful when our hopes are connected to his hopes. These aren't, we aren't casting spells, which is often the way that God's promises are used. It's like, I really want this job. And you know the plans you have for me, plans to prosper me, and this job's a raise. Oftentimes we use verses that way. So, to answer your question, which was, <laughs> uh, is it appropriate for us as Christians to apply all of God's biblical promises to our personal lives? Yes, it, it is. The promises of God to us in Christ Jesus are, are yes and amen. Uh, but understand what does that practically mean and what does that practically look like? Often pretty different than what we want what we would intend for it. So it takes a real wisdom to apply those well. Next question. How does a Christian take and give, that makes sense, comfort when truly horrific things occur near or far? Are we we merely to trust that God will somehow make everything work out? Yes, except for the word merely. Look at what's at the center of our faith. How does God work out our salvation? Any, anyone know? Fear, well, yeah, that's how God asks us to work out our own salvation, fear and trembling. Jesus. Yeah, that's the answer to the question, usually. So, there's... A, so God works out our salvation through Jesus and through what happening to Jesus, through Jesus uh, going through this, this trial that by all accounts is wrongly ordered and illegal, and a mob turning on him, him being unjustly uh, convicted and then murdered by the most powerful empire probably the world has known. And from that, from these evil intentions of humanity, God works out this incredible salvation for the world. So, in that we see sort of a picture of this, this, this sort of problem of evil, right? Which is that God is using all of these means 
And the fact of our existence is we can't see the beginning, excuse me, the end from the beginning. And so we are in this place of tension where we have to, we are called to trust by faith in the midst of these circumstances to say, we know you are working something good from this because you are good and this is all in your hands. And yet we can't see it right now. I can't trace the line of cause and effect towards how something good will come from this. this is, that is the tension that we're called to live in. And we're able to more effectively because we can see how he's worked in the past. We can see how he brought about the most beautiful thing from the most wretched thing, the killing of God's own son. Uh, so, yeah, that is, that is, in many ways, the challenge of Christianity. Next question. Cool. All right, let's pray, and then we'll take communion. Uh, communion is a recognition of the fact that God saves sinners. Uh, and if you are a Christian, it's a recognizing that uh, this was not your character, your work that drew you to him. But it was him working from beginning to end, from accomplishing your atonement by the breaking of Jesus' body and the pouring out of his blood, and then applying it to your spirit by calling you, by working out the intricacies of your life that you might hear his message of salvation, that it might transform you. We come humbly to take the bread and the wine in remembrance of that. So let's pray. Father, it is so difficult in our day-to-day -day circumstances to be able to connect the work that you're calling us to do, the work that we're involved with, the work that we're involved in, to your purposes in the world, to the kingdom that you're bringing about in the world. Father, I pray that you would give us a new confidence in your control new eyes to see the ways that you truly work that we may have previously written off. Lord, that you might open our eyes, peel back the curtain by your scripture and by your spirit working in us to see your work in the world. That way we may be a part of it. Father, the good news is that you save sinners. Lord, that is what our faith is in that our character might be built on that bedrock. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in us now to more firmly hold to that, even amidst the horrible circumstances of life. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.